Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Good morning. Well, I don't know about you, but winter seems like it's gone on an awful long time. Can anybody agree with me on that? Yes, I am so just thankful to see the sun out there. One of the problems that I have with winter, I don't know about you, but I tend to just eat too much. Why are you all laughing? Because the rest of you can identify with me. You see, what happens in winter, I just start to eat too much, and I always wear a belt. And you guys notice that? And let me tell you why I wear a belt, because there's holes in it. And what I do in the morning, I see what hole I'm in. I call this my belly barometer. You know, if I'm eating too much, I know because then in the morning I have to put it a little farther out. And um, with spring coming on, I'm really trying to sort of get on top of my diet, get on top of my exercise, you know, get some exercise in in the morning, eat healthy fruits and vegetables, and hopefully get back in shape. Anybody else trying to do some of this kind of stuff? Yeah, we're all there after the long winter. Get back in shape. I read some statistics this past week that for those of us who are trying to get back in shape this spring, well, you will find extremely discouraging. There were some studies done on dieters, and depending on what studies you look at, they say up to 95% of dieters regain the weight that they lose. That is just depressing. It's like, why even try? We're all going to be like Oprah. You know how she, big, skinny, big, skinny. Just go back and forth. Depends on where she's at with her diet. Because what happens is they say we relapse. We relapse into our old eating habits and pick up right where we left off. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about the problem of relapse. We're not going to talk about relapsing into eating junk food and cakes and pies, but we're going to talk about something much more serious, relapsing into our old sinful habits, because everyone here has sins that we struggle with. Sins that for a time, a period of time, we're on top of. And then when we get under the right stressful situations, we go right back to them. And we fall to that same old sin again and again. Maybe for you, the, the sin that you relapse to is your mouth. Usually you keep it under control, but when the stress starts to build up and life starts to get really difficult, all of a sudden you start to let people have it with your mouth. And you cut them to pieces with the sword of your tongue. And you feel bad about it. And you repent about it. You say, God, I, I told you I'd never do that again. But here I went right back to my old sin. You're like Rambo. You're like, oh God, they drew first blood. Maybe for you, the problem that you struggle with and relapse on is not the sins of your mouth, but it's the lust of your heart. Many men struggle with relapsing into, into that sin. And they go out of their way and they put internet blockers and filters and all that kind of stuff in their computer. And they're very careful about what they watch on television. And they, they don't stay up late and doing things that would get them in those kind of situations. But when they're, they're lonely and when it's late 
And when they're in the right situations, they find themselves in this tug of war with the sins of lust once again. And all of a sudden, they find themselves losing. And they say, God, I told you I would never do that again. And here I go right back to my old sin. I relapsed again and again. Maybe for you, uh, the sin that you struggle with is not your mouth, it's not lust, but it's just the pride of your heart. You ever meet those people that are so gifted and they're so smart and maybe they're so financially wealthy that they just start to get prideful? They, they lose touch with the rest of us. And, you know, every single thing seems to be easy for them to do and easy for them to think through. And they talk to other people they work with. And for other people, it's much harder it takes longer. And those people who are uber gifted, they start to look down on people. They start to get arrogant. They start to get prideful. And they realize it. And they repent of it. But after a while, all of a sudden, they find themselves going back to it again and again. What does God do when we relapse into sin? What does God do when we relapse into sin again and again and again, is there a time where God just says, you know, I've had enough of this. I'm going to write you off. I am done with you. I am no longer going to use you. It is over with. That's the question we're going to answer this morning. What does God do with relapsers? Relapsers into sin like you and me. Now, we're working our way through the book of Genesis, and we are up to Genesis chapter 20. And in the book of Genesis, we have been looking at how um, the story of Abraham in this section. And what we've seen in, about Abraham is that he is a great man of faith. In fact, the book of Hebrews calls him a hero of the faith. And after a while, we start to think that this guy is bulletproof, that he could be one of those Marvel comic superheroes and maybe show up in one of those new Marvel comic movies because Abraham, he's the great hero of the faith. He comes in the Bible. He's talked about 300 times. But I need to let you know before we jump into this chapter that Abraham is not bulletproof. Abraham is not Superman. doesn't have a big A in his chest or anything like that. Abraham is an ordinary man. He's a sinner like you and me, and he's somebody who keeps relapsing into sin again and again. Let me tell you about his sin because it's a little more serious than you would think. You see, when Abraham gets nervous, when he gets in stressful situations, this is what he does. He disowns his wife, tells her to take her wedding ring off, tells him that he takes off his wedding ring off and he pretends like they're single. That's literally what he does when he gets under stressful situations because Abraham's wife, Sarah, is extremely beautiful and he is very nervous that somebody is going to bump him off to marry her. So he figures, you know, as long as I act like I'm just her brother, no one will bump me off and get rid of me. And he does this again 
and again and again. So ladies, if you think your husband, you don't like some of his nervous actions when he gets under stress, just be thankful your husband is not like Abraham. Because Abraham disowns his wife and takes off his wedding ring when he gets nervous. At least your husband doesn't do that. This is serious stuff. In fact, we saw this in Genesis chapter 12, the very beginning of Abraham's story. He goes down to Egypt. Remember, he's worried that someone's going to steal his wife. So he says, we're just brother and sister. And Pharaoh scoops her into, into his harem. And if it were not for the supernatural, miraculous intervention of God to save her, she would have committed adultery unwillingly, all because of Abraham's incredible cowardice and incredible sin. Today, when we get to Genesis 20, it's going to sound just like Genesis 12. What happens is this time Abraham doesn't go down to Egypt. He goes down to the area of the Philistines. Once again, he begins to think, oh, my wife is so beautiful. Somebody's going to bump me off. I'm just going to say that you're my sister and I'm your brother. And she gets scooped into another harem. And once again, God saves her again. But what I find most interesting is realize how old they are when this happens. Abraham is 100 years old at this point. His wife is 90. This means one of two things have happened. Either when the Bible says Sarah is hot, she is like seriously hot if people will kill for her when she's age 90. Or Abraham has a really bad case of cataracts. I don't know which one. Well, let's jump into the text and see how this unfolds. This is going to be very interesting this morning. Beginning in your outline, Genesis chapter 20, the first seven verses. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, because the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? I mean, did not... He himself say to me, she is my sister? And he herself said, he is my brother. Like in integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in integrity of your heart. And that it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. First question, as we start to work our way through this, is why did Abraham leave Mamre? Now, if you've been with us, you'll understand what the area of Mamre is. Mamre is where uh, Abraham settled back in the earlier chapters of Genesis. He's been there for multiple chapters. And all of a sudden, he's up. He's left Mamre. We don't know why. 
The Bible doesn't tell us that God told him to leave. For some reason, he is now sojourning, and he's out in hostile territory. Now, I don't have a good answer, but I'll give you my thoughts on this. Remember what God did to the cities of the Jordan Valley, Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember how he overthrew them. It says it rained down burning fire and sulfur on them. And we know that that area we have seen is filled with tar pits. Most likely what happened was some kind of volcanic activity where like molten lava and the tar got thrown into the air and landed all over these cities in the Jordan Valley. In fact, it sort of looks like apocalypse now. (laughs) It's burned up. Even to this day, it's a lifeless region. That is 20 miles away from Mamre. What do you think it is like to live 20 miles away from like a volcanic ground zero? Not too pleasant. Wake up in the morning to the smell of burning sulfur wafting through the air. Smoke continuing to rise only 20 miles away in the distance, clogging your throats in the morning. So my guess, and this is just a guess, doesn't say, is that Abraham's like, I think I need to get out of town for a while. I'm going to sojourn. Let's move on. He ends up going to the Negev, which is the desert region. He ends up going into the area of Gerar, which is the Philistine territory. By the way, is this still within the bounds of the promised land? little quick question for those of you who are Bible scholars. Yes, it actually is still within the bounds of the promised land. He's not left the promised land. Are the Philistines like real friendly people to God's people? No. You remember David and Goliath and the, David and the Philistines? They're not real friendly towards God's people. So Abraham is very nervous. Abraham is sleeping with one eye open at this point, not real happy about where he is. It's sort of like an American moving to Turkey or an American moving to Iran. You don't wear Christian T-shirts. You don't put a fish on the back of your car and drive through the center of Baghdad. I mean, you don't crank Christian music out your window. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know. does not go over real well in public when you're in Muslim lands. This is what it's like for Abraham. He is very nervous. Not only is he nervous for his life, but he's nervous for his wife. Remember, he is 100 years old. She is 90 years old. And apparently, like I said earlier, she is still drop-dead gorgeous. She is enough that he believes that people would kill him to get to her. Now, ladies, I know all of you were wishing that this information was recorded in the Bible. Sarah's beauty secrets. It doesn't tell us what her creams and lotions were. It doesn't tell us what her beauty secrets were, but I think if it did, somebody would figure it out, somebody would market it and be be richer than Donald Trump in a matter of months, and they would be running for president. Imagine this, 90-year-old woman who has spent her entire life in the desert in the sun. Talk about skin-sun damage. But her skin is not sun-damaged. She is still looking like she's a 20-year-old. 
this is the situation we have going on here. Beautiful woman. Now, what happens is God approaches um, Abimelech in a dream. And he says, Abimelech, you're dead meat. You are dead meat. And when God approaches you in a dream and the first words out of his mouth is you're dead meat, it is not good. It really catches your attention. You are dead meat because the woman you just took into your harem is already married. By the way, does God value marriage? Uh, yeah. Like, you're dead meat because you took a married woman. And, and he says, Abimelech says, no, wait a minute here. Wait, wait, hold on. I'm innocent. They said they were brother and sister. They didn't say they were husband and wife. I didn't do this intentionally. I didn't do anything wrong. Now, here's the first point I'd like to make in the way of application on this. Even if I don't feel guilty of sin, that doesn't mean I am innocent of sin. Even if I don't feel guilty of sin, it doesn't mean I am innocent of sin. Abimelech didn't feel guilty, did he? But was he guilty? Yes. See, there's this myth in our American culture, that sin is only when we feel guilty or when we know we've done something wrong. You ask people generally, what, you know, are, am I going to die and go to heaven? They say, well, probably because I've seen what people are like in the newspaper and I'm not like the people in the newspaper. I don't think I'm intentionally doing a bunch of stuff wrong. So I'm probably not that much of a sinner. I'm basically a good person. That is the default stance of just about everybody in American culture. But I want to back you up to what we studied at Christmas. If you were here during our Christmas study, remember Christmas from the book of Leviticus? We learned something very interesting. There are two kinds of sins. Intentional sins and unintentional sins. In fact, almost all of the Old Testament sacrificial system, the daily sacrifices, the weekly sacrifices, the monthly sacrifices, they were all for unintentional sins. The simple truth is that we sin unintentionally all the time. We don't realize it. And sometimes we sin and we don't realize it too much later when somebody points it out. And then we're like, oh, now I feel terrible. I, I, did, was, I was feeling fine. I thought I was doing well. You pointed it out. Now I realize I was wrong. Please forgive me. I sinned. You see, there is a lot of unintentional sin out there. We are much more sinful than we realize. And that's why when we pray, oftentimes when you pray and you talk to God in your prayers, one of the things that's real helpful to say is, God, not just forgive me of the sin that I know I've done wrong, but God, I know there's sin in my life I don't even know I've done wrong. Things I've done unintentionally, and I'm still guilty. Would you please forgive me of that? I'll give you an example. Um, say a pharmacist. Uh, they work in the, uh, as a pharmacist and you order some drugs, you get some medicine, and they unintentionally mix your drugs wrong. They unintentionally give you the wrong medicine. You go home, you take it, and it has a, uh, an interaction with some other medicine you're already taking, and the person dies. 
Is that pharmacist guilty of murder? Yes or no? Yes. But was it done in, unintentionally? Yes. Is Abimelech going to be guilty of adultery for sleeping with Sarah's wife if that goes through? Yes. Would it have been done unintentionally? Yes. It, it's not as serious of a sin as if it was done intentionally, but it's still sin. So even if I don't feel guilty of sin, it doesn't mean I'm innocent of sin. Number two, sometimes God graciously protects me from sin and disaster. He does that. Remember after God warns Abimelech, Abimelech protests and he says, you know what, I didn't touch her. And it's a good thing you didn't touch her because you would be dead meat if you did touch her. And then God says, the reason you didn't touch her is because I kept you from touching her. This is the interesting thought. Did you realize sometimes God delays things? Sometimes God protects us. He protects us from stepping into our own sin. I don't know what it was. Somehow, I believe there was some kind of delay on the wedding day or delay on the wedding night for Abimelech. Maybe Sarah had a headache, like a really nasty one that she couldn't get over. Maybe there was some kind of pressing government business that Abimelech was forced to attend to, so we had to delay the wedding. We don't know what it is, but God kept Abimelech from being able to go into his new bride and be able to touch her. Because if he had done that, he would have been dead meat. My simple point to you is this. Do you realize that God brings delays in our life? God protects us from sin. He protects us from our own mistakes. And the times that we are often sitting there saying, God, why could you let my schedule get so messed up? May it be exactly the time God's messing up your schedule to protect you from disaster, to protect you from your own sin. How many people on September 11th were thankful that things fell apart on their schedule that morning and they didn't make it to work on time? God graciously protected those people from disaster. Let me give you an example. When Cindy and I were first married, uh, we were living in Chicago, and Cindy's mother was not that healthy, and so we wanted, we wanted to live near her mother and father to take care of them, which seems to be something we've done a lot of in our, in our marriage. That's okay. There was a small church right down the road from her parents. I thought, this is great. I was looking on the Trinity job board, and they were looking for a youth pastor. I'm like, I want to be a youth pastor. This is great. I'll apply. I go to the uh, interview. Things are going really great through the interview, and I, I've got this one in the bag. I'm going to work here. We're going to be able to take care of her mom and her father. It's going to be, go well. And then they got to this question. It was a question about alcohol. They said, what's your stance on drinking? And so I told them. I said, well, I don't drink, but I can't tell you that drinking is wrong absolutely all the time because the Bible doesn't say drinking is wrong in all situations. But I can tell you this. 
Alcohol, in biblical times, first of all, was much less potent than it is in modern times. In biblical times, you didn't have a water filtration system. You didn't have purified and clean water. So oftentimes, what they would do is they'd ferment some grape juice, and that would have a slight alcoholic content, and they'd drink that because that way they knew they wouldn't get dysentery and they wouldn't get sick. Or they would water down the wine, pouring it into water, and that alcohol content would then kill all the microbes so people wouldn't be sick. So when you see people drinking all the time in the, the Bible, it's drinking for a different reason than we drink. It wasn't drinking to get drunk. In fact, if you wanted to get drunk on that stuff, you pretty much had to inflate yourself <laughs> with all kinds of liquids because it was well watered down. Second thing I told them, the reason I don't drink is because I have alcoholism in my family. My uncle uh, almost lost his marriage as his addiction to alcohol. My grandfather was also somebody who did, had problems with alcohol. So I said, like, it's in my genes. Just a matter of wisdom, I'm not going to drink because I know that I have a predisposition towards that addictive kind of compulsive alcoholic personality. So I'm just not going to drink. Though so I'm not going to say that drinking all the time is wrong. Number two, I told them that I don't want to encourage others to drink because people will look at me as a pastor and they'll say, hey, Pastor Kurt is always pulling back a cool one. I'm going to drink his brand. And I don't want to encourage somebody to drink, especially if they are going to have problems with a drink. So I would just give up my rights to drink and just abstain. And the last one I didn't add at that time, but I would have added, is after 20 years of doing ministry, I've never had a person say to me, boy, am I so thankful I drink. It's made my life better. Every single time, it's, oh, I wish I didn't drink because it's made my life worse. My marriage is broken up. My children are hurt because of things I've said and the things I've done again and again. I have a laundry list of people where alcohol has ruined their life. So I said, well, here's my deal. You know, I, I, I don't drink, but I can't tell you that alcohol is wrong every single time. And at that point, the guy doing the interview started to get really twitchy. And he said to me, um, here at this church, we teach that alcohol is a sin and you could never drink it ever. And me being the smarty pants and the 20-year-old guy, I put my Bible down. I said, prove it. And for instance, what do you do with 1 Timothy 5.23, where Paul writes to Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Remember I told you the background culturally? Timothy is like, I'm never going to drink alcohol because people get drunk from drinking alcohol. Paul is telling the Timothy, use a little wine to get the microbes and the sickness out of the water so you don't get sick in your stomach all the time. How much? A little. Now, where did it go from there? Uh, that pretty much ended the job interview. And I uh, remember leaving, and I said, that tanked it, didn't it? And they called me the next day and said, I don't think we're going to need you as our youth pastor. We'll keep looking. And I remember saying to God, God, why did you shut this door? This church is right next to her parents. We could do ministry here. We could help them. 
But it was down the road that I was so thankful that God shut that door because I discovered that church was a pretty unhealthy church, a very bad place to work. And for a first job in ministry, man, that would have been a really bad place to cut your teeth on. But God in His providential care delayed me from getting a job and protected me from what it would have been disaster. Here's my challenge to you in this section. This week when your internet gets really slow, don't get mad. Think maybe God has a reason. This week when all of a sudden you, you get to, um, um, your computer crashes, you say, God, now is not the time. Maybe God has a reason for delaying you and slowing you down. When you get into the checkout line at Hy-Vee, you ever done this? You're in the checkout line. There's one person in front of you. I'm going to run through here. I'm late for an appointment. And the person starts to pay their bill in pennies. And they count it out. Instead of getting angry at them, go, you know, okay, God, maybe there's a reason you're delaying. Maybe you're protecting me from either my own sin or you're protecting me from disaster. I can trust you, even in this delay. That's what God did for Abimelech. That's why his wedding night didn't work. And boy, is he thankful it didn't, because it would have been the end of his life. Let's continue. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and he called all his servants and told them all these things. The men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, Well, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and then she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Now, what I like about this, first of all, I remember Lot who delayed and the angels had to drag him out of the city? Not Abimelech. First of all, when God says, you're a dead, dead man, he listens. First thing in the morning, we're going to deal with this. We're going to address this. Drags Abraham in and says, what have you done? Like, we treated you kind. You're fine. You're, you're grazing your animals. So why did you do this great sin against me? What did I do to deserve any of this? I almost slept with your wife, for heaven's sake. I want to point this out. Realize this. You know, when I sin, others will suffer. When I sin, others will suffer. Abraham sinned. Who suffered? Sarah almost committed adultery, all because of Abraham's cowardice and sin. Who almost suffered? Abimelech. He would have been killed by God. And it says all the people with him, like <laughs> all of them killed by God. All, they do anything wrong? No. Who committed the sin? 
Abraham, who suffered, everybody else. This is one thing we need to keep in mind. When we sin, what we often think is it's self-contained. If I lie, this won't hurt anybody else. If I don't tell the truth, it won't really matter. It's my choice, my sin, and that's completely wrong. When we sin, the ones who suffer is everybody else, in particular those who are closest to us, those who are nearest to us, which usually means our family. Let me give you some examples of when we sin, others suffer. Remember the uh, whole Enron scandal and why the executives at Enron were busy lining themselves a golden parachute so they could be f- make sure they could fall safely? Who suffered? All the people who built the company. All the people who put their retirement in the company. They didn't have a golden parachute. When those executives sinned, everybody else suffered. When you're a teenager, you get involved taking drugs. And you say, well, this is just me. It's, it's my choice to mess up my life. It's not just you who suffers. It's your parents who suffer. Their heartache and their, and their brokenness. It's your friends who are influenced then to start taking drugs because you're taking drugs and they suffer. Your sin never stays self-contained. The classic is the drunk driver. They get into an accident. Who usually suffers most? The people they kill. Because for some reason, the drunk driver always seems to survive. When you sin, others will suffer. How about a marriage situation where a husband and a wife get a divorce? Who suffers? The children. Usually it's the children. Sin is never isolated. It always touches others. Remember that when you're tempted to sin. This, and if I choose to sin, it won't just influence me. It'll hurt those who I love most and those who are closest. Second thing to learn, or fourth thing to learn here. Truths intended to deceive are still a lie. Truths that are intended to deceive are still a lie. Now, were Abraham and Sarah brother and sister? Technically, yes. But they were intended to deceive people by saying that half-truth. What you discover is that there's this little thing that goes on in our minds that if we can tell a half-truth, we think it's okay. The Bible doesn't say half-truths are okay. Any truth intended to deceive is still a lie. Let me tell you how this would fan out even in Jesus' time. Matthew 23, verse 16 tells us this. It tells us that the, in Jesus' day, what the Pharisees did is they had a whole system. They said, if you would say, I swear I'm telling the truth by the temple, you could actually lie. But if you said, I'm swearing I'm telling the truth by the gold that is in the temple, then you are bound by your oath. So if you didn't know that, you could trick somebody. That's a lie. It's a truth intended to deceive. Remember when you were in a playground as kids, and people would they'd say things, and people would say things that sounded outlandish, and you'd say, that can't be true. And they would say, well, I can say it because I had my fingers crossed. Remember that? Truths intended to deceive are still a lie. 
or you'd be on the playground. And people would say things that were outlandish, but you didn't think it was true until they said, I cross my heart and hope to die. I swear to God I'm telling the truth. Then you knew they were telling the truth. The Bible says this in Matthew 5, 32. It says, let our yes be yes and our no be no. No finger crossing. No oaths necessary. If you know Jesus Christ, the defining quality of your speech is you are telling the truth all the time. Not using, like Abraham, half-truths intended to deceive. Because they are still lies. Now, whenever we talk about this idea that we have to be absolutely truthful at all the time, there's this really stupid debate that comes about. Do you remember this one? Is it ever right to tell a lie? And the classic is this. What do we do if we're hiding Jews in our basement and the Nazis knock on our door and they say, are you hiding Jews? Do, should we lie or tell the truth? What do you think? Here's what I want you to realize about this debate. It's a stupid debate. How many of you are hiding Jews in your basement? How many of you have Nazis knocking on your door? Anybody here? I don't think so. The focus is not when can we tell a lie. The focus is we need to be more truthful husbands. We need to be more truthful men. We need to be more truthful moms. We need to be more honest employees. That is what we need to focus on 99.9999999% of the time. Because the idea of how many times you're hiding Jews in your basement like almost never happens and probably will never happen in your life. So don't focus on like when can I tell a lie? Focus on how can I always tell the truth. By the way, just to answer this question, is it ever conceivably possible that you should be telling a lie? Yes. Now I've got your attention. Let me give you an example. Remember when um, the Jews were in Egypt and the, he the midwives, the Egyptian midwives, were told that when the Hebrew women give birth and it's a male, they should kill it on the birth stool. And what do those midwives do? Either delayed getting there or whatever. When, they, when Pharaoh uh, asked them, you know, why are you not killing all these baby boys? They said, well, I'm sorry, these Jewish women are not like the Egyptian women. The Egyptian women take time in birth. These Jewish women just, you know, just pop them out before I get there. Can't do anything about it. They lied. And it says that God blessed them and gave them children. Because you know what the situation was? Either commit murder or tell a lie. In that situation, it was right to tell a lie. Now, here's the question. How many times do we face a situation where it's either commit murder or tell a lie? Almost never. I'll give you another example. 
Rahab, the prostitute. Remember this in the Old Testament. She had a house that was on top of one of the walls of Jericho. And there were the Jewish spies who had come. And she was hiding the Jewish spies. And the, the leaders of Jericho came to her door. And they asked, hey, are you hiding any Jews in your basement? Sound familiar? And what did she say? Oh, no, <clears throat> you missed it. They just left. They went that way and sends them on a wild goose chase. And they were actually still in her house. She lied. Same situation. Either tell a lie or people would be killed. How often times do we see that situation? Almost absolutely never. So my point is this. Focus on being honest, being truthful, not being like um, Abraham and like, when can I tell a lie? One more thing I want to mention here. Number five, don't be surprised when my children copy my sins but not my boundaries. Don't be surprised when my children copy my sins but not my boundaries. And what I want to do is I want to actually jump beyond this immediate text and just sort of extend things out here. And this is going to be very interesting for you. Abraham and Sarah, half-brother and half-sister. And what they did is they used that as a half-truth lie to strangers. But here's what I want you to realize. Our children are watching us when we tell those half-truth lies, and they're learning about us. Abraham and Sarah eventually have Isaac. Isaac eventually goes back to Gerar in a time of famine. And what does Isaac do? Let me read this to you. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, what? She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Can anybody say deja vu? Exactly. That's right. He's doing the exact same thing his father did. Exact same fears his father had. But here's where it gets interesting. Abraham and Sarah were half-brother and sister. So they told a half-truth to a stranger. Were Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, brothers and sisters? No. They told a full-on lie to a stranger. You see, our kids will repeat our same sins, but they won't keep the same boundaries. They'll take it beyond the boundary we set for ourselves. Now, take it another generation. Isaac eventually has uh, two children, Esau and Jacob. Remember Esau? He's the fairy guy. He looks like Chewbacca off of Star Wars. And um, he's the guy who likes to hunt. He's the guy who likes to fish. He's, the, he's like the all-American camo dude. Jacob, he's the opposite way. He's the smooth-skinned guy. He stays home with mom and watches the Food Channel. You know, so you have these two very different sons. Esau is born first, and so by rights he would get the blessing. So as Isaac is about to die, you're supposed to give your blessing. This is an ironclad gift it's like, that goes on and who gets the inheritance. This is what happens. At the prompting of his mom, 
Jacob pretends to be his brother. Puts on animal skins on his arms so he feels furry like his brother. Wears his brother's clothes. He goes into his father and deceives his father and steals the family blessing. Now think about this. Abraham and Sarah told a half-truth to a stranger. Isaac and Rebekah told a full-on lie to a stranger. Jacob tells a full-on lie to his own father. Are you seeing a progression here? Our children repeat our sins, but they don't keep the same boundaries. Let's go one step further. Jacob ends up marrying two women. They ended up in a maternity battle. Like, who can pop out more kids? <laughs> so what ends up happening is you have this thing where they're popping out kids all over the place like rabbits. Jacob is very good at making kids, but he's not very good at parenting kids. If you remember, he starts to play favorites, like big-time favorites to his youngest son, Joseph. He gives him a cult of many colors. So when Joseph walks in a room, where does every eye go? The multicolored stained glass window that's walking around the room. And across the back of the coat, this is tongue-in-cheek, but it says this, essentially, Daddy loves me best. Now, how does that go over with his brothers, do you think? Not real well. Jacob sends Joseph out to see his brothers in the field. His brothers see him, and they said, we're going to stop this once and for all. We're going to murder him. We're going to kill him, and we're going to put the, his blood on his coat and bring it back to dad. Reuben, one of the sons, comes to the rescue and says, don't murder him. Put him down this well. They do that, and what happens is Reuben is gone, and the brothers end up selling Joseph to Ishmaelite slave traders. They go off into Egypt. But here's how it rounds out. Not just one child, but every single child in the family agrees to tell a full-on lie to their father. Do you see the progression? Half-truth to a stranger for Abraham and Sarah. Full-on lie to a stranger for Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob, full-on lie to his own father. <laughs> then you have his sons. All of them convolute together to tell a full-on lie to him. My point is this. Parents, our kids are watching what we do. They are learning from our sins. They will follow our sins, but they will go beyond our sins. The idea is this. If we uh, have an appointment, and what happens is we want to cancel the appointment, and we call on the phone, and we say, oh, I'm sorry, we just can't come tonight. I'm not feeling well. And the kids know that was a lie. You can rest assured they'll do the exact same thing, but they'll take it beyond your boundaries. When you are in a family business and your kids see how you shaft a customer, they'll watch that. They'll learn from that. And when they get the family business, they'll shaft a customer just like you, but they'll shaft them even harder. See where this goes? Let's read the last bit of text. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, 
his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Brother as in quotes. <laughs> it is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and his female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And what still amazes me about this last section is here is Abraham who has relapsed into the same old sin. Abraham who has caused all kind of disaster for Sarah and for Abimelech, and Abimelech's household, Abimelech's wives aren't bearing children. There's all kinds of physiological problems. Don't you think at this time, after Abram has done this multiple times, that God would say, I am so tired of you. I am done with you. I am just going to write you off. But he didn't. Do you notice that? God is still using Abraham. The very guy who caused the problem is the one who is to pray for Abimelech and to solve the problem. What does God do with relapsers? Does he drop them and let them go? No. He continues to hold on to you. He continues to use you. He's faithful to you even when you're not faithful to him. Are there consequences to sin? Oh, yes. May God discipline us because of our sin. Rest assured he will. Will God let you go because of your sin? Absolutely not. He'll even continue to use you no matter where you are. Now, how should we respond to God's love in spite of our relapses? Three things I want to give you as I close. Number one, this should keep us pretty humble. It should keep us so humble. God's love for us is not because we're so good. It's because he's so gracious. It's not because we're so good. It's because he's so gracious. Number two, it should encourage me in my failures. Because when you relapse into sin again and again, I do, you do. In our failures, we say, God, you, just want to, you should just let me go. He won't. And number three, it should change the way I look at others. It should change the way I look at others. If God is gracious and patient with me when we keep relapsing into sin, it should help us be gracious and patient with others as they relapse into sin as well. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for... Uh, the seeing Abraham's relapses into sin, serious sin, denying his own wife. I thank you that in spite of this, that he did not just in Genesis 12 with Egypt, not just in Genesis 20 with Abimelech, but it says every place he went, he did this out of fear. Thank you that you were faithful to him in spite of his con consistent fallings into this sin and that you will be faithful to us as we continue in our battles with our old sinful habits as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.